Welcome, everybody, to the LSE. Um, <coughs> I'm Julian Legrand. Um, I'm a, a professor here at the LSE at the Marshall Institute. Uh, and it's my great honor and privilege to be chairing this lecture. Um, it's a lecture given by Olmo Silva. Um, I will just say a word or two about him before a few housekeeping matters. Uh, Olmo has started his studies at uh, Bocconi. Uh, and subsequently the European University Institute in Florence, uh, and then to UCL, uh, then to the Centre for Economic Performance here at LSE, and then to the Department of Geography at 2000, 2007, where he was, is now the Reef Professor. I'm told the Reef Professor is the, the Professor of Real Estate and Economics and Finance. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, um, but he's not going to talk about real estate um, or indeed finance. Um, we'll come to what he's going to talk about in a moment. But we also have uh, to act as commentator. Um, we're very pleased to have Amy Finch here with us. Um, she is the head of strategic evaluation at Oxford. Oh, sorry, it's Ofsted. <laughs> That's an interesting slip. I'm not sure where that came from. Um, uh, and before that, she was head of education at the uh, think tank Reform. And before that, um, uh, parliamentary researcher for the Liberal Democrats. Um, so without further ado, we shall uh, get on with, the, uh, with our task um, the emergency exits are at the back, so I don't think there's, I don't, there's no fire alarm scheduled that, that I'm aware of. Um, what uh, Olmo is going to talk to us about is school autonomy, school choice, and the quality of education. Evidence from England. Olmo. Okay. Am I on? Am I mic'd up? Can you hear me? I hear not very far. So, okay. Thank you, Julian, for the introduction. And... Um, what Julian told me he would say, but he's forgotten to actually say, this is my inaugural lecture. So this is oh. the lecture to celebrate my um, promotion to professor. And it's a great irony that uh, one of your colleagues shows up in your office and just at the time when you're thinking, okay, I've made it, I can relax, asks you to present in an hour 10 years of your work, and that colleague is Henry Overman over here. <laughs> so thank you, Henry, for giving me this chance to embarrass myself, but also actually to give me a chance to talk about my work um, yes, on autonomy, school choice, and the quality of education, which has basically occupied most of my research agenda in the past 10 years, especially when I uh, think about that part of my research that uh, has dealt with education. Uh, I will indulge a bit in using predominantly my own work, given that is my inaugural lecture, but I will try also to bring insights from uh, the work that other people have done in this field so that we get a better picture of um, what we've learned in the past, uh, uh, if you want, 10 years about these debates in the UK. Uh, the work that I've carried out in this area is basically not the sole author. Predominantly, it's been done with Steve Gibbons there at the back and another Steve here at the LSC, Steve Machin. Uh, they've been very instrumental in basically developing this agenda. And uh, yes, I'm very grateful for the contribution in terms of debate and co-authorship that they've given to this agenda. And uh, yes, the views expressed tonight are my own, including the overstatements that I will probably make about our, our contributions to the literature. Uh, there's also other people at this university, including Julian, that has contributed greatly to this debate about autonomy and choice in education and in other publicly provided uh, goods. And uh, yes, I'm greatly um, acknowledged the contribution, but as I said, I'm going to predominantly stick to my work 
uh, and that's the prerogative of being my inaugural. But also because I want to basically champion a bit the research that has been done at the CEP, where I'm also affiliated, and at the Department of Geography. Okay, so before we get to the discussion and the debate, how come it goes by two? Okay, stop there. Before we get to a context and a discussion of what we talk, um, I would like to guide you through tonight, let me just tell you that broadly speaking, uh, autonomy, choice, competition in education are topics that are really high on the uh, public policy agenda and stir quite a lot of debates. Witness all the titles here that are put on this slide. And uh, very often in the UK, the idea of this, uh, the discussions about autonomy and choice have uh, sort of relied or have predominantly focused on the discussion about the impact of academies in the education landscape. And uh, as you can see from this collection of titles here, there are mixed opinions about what they can do, and mixed opinion in general about what market incentives in education choice and competition might be doing. At the very top there, you have basically the economist arguing that the academy's program has transformed English educational landscape, even if after a while, actually, they toned down a bit their comments and said, well, it produced some good schools, but also plenty of not so good schools. And at the bottom here, you have uh, the independent saying that Teachers claim that basically make all schools convert into academies is a terrible idea. So there's a lot of discussions about these issues in the media, among politicians and public policy experts. And uh, the, sort of the, the, the talk tonight is going to try and guide you through some of the empirical literature that has collected evidence on these issues to try to understand whether the economist or the independent is right or wrong, and if anybody is right or wrong in, in general terms. Before we get there, let me talk to you about some of the context. And uh, broadly speaking, it's not just the UK that is moving towards provision of education services more centered around the ideas of choice, autonomy, and competition. Reforms around the world have basically pushed the education system in this direction. You can think about, for example, free schools in Sweden and uh, charter schools in the UK as the embodiment of the idea of choice and autonomy in this education system. The difference with the UK, if you want, is that whereas charters and free schools still account for about 10% of the pupils enrolled in the US and in Sweden, the discussions about autonomy and choice in the UK are much more central because academies, which are the embodiment, if you want, of this idea of providing more autonomy to school and see what happens, now basically account for about 50-60% of the secondary market and a good 15-20% to of the primary market. Okay? And the intuition behind this push is that, yes, on the one hand, we have evidence that potentially the resource-based intervention that past policymakers have focused on are not particularly effective at improving education standards. But more important, there are some notions that suggest that choice and autonomy can lead to the emergence of best practice and improve education standards because of two main mechanisms, or at least two mechanisms that are very often mentioned, one being matching, the other one being market incentives, and matching comes with the idea of choice and autonomy in the sense that if schools are basically allowed to differentiate the product that they offer, and uh, they can basically cater to different students with different needs, and parents can choose the school that they like, this matching of good school for that specific child with specific need is going to improve education standard because the matching between the needs and the provider are basically better than in the absence of autonomy and choice. But very often the most talked incentive is, or mechanism is the one that is brought around by market incentives and mainly competition. If parents can choose 
and the schools that are underperforming are going to be at the risk of losing children. They have to basically up their games and survive in the market, and that is basically going to bring education standards that improve across the board. Unfortunately, despite being intuitive, maybe appealing is a strong word, not everybody might find this mechanism to be particularly appealing as a way of arranging an education system, the validity of these arguments rests on some building blocks that have to be sort of built as part of institutions when the policy aim is to focus on quasi-marketing education. In a sense, you need some ingredients in order for this recipe to deliver some kind of magic taste, which is improved educational standards across the board. So I'm going to guide you through the four uh, building blocks that should be included, if you want, in choice-based education system. And these are accountability, choice, autonomy, and if you want, market forces working and playing out um, in the, the education arena. And I'm going to say that my research has basically focused on choice, autonomy, and market forces. But I want to say something about accountability before moving on and telling you about some work that I've done in this field. Uh, accountability, well, basically that means making a publicly available school quality metrics that allow parents to basically inform their choice about which school to attend and compare schools across different, uh, across a possible range of institutions they would like to attend along comparable metrics that basically convey any information about the quality that these schools are able to serve to their children. Uh, there is a lot of work uh, on these issues. Um, in the US as much as in the UK, and some people think that accountability system might basically improve education standards because of name and shame uh, mechanisms, whereby if schools are identified as poorly performing, the head teacher is going to simply respond to that incentive and up their games and basically turn the school around. There is also some work done by Simon Burgess here in the UK, my colleague up in Bristol, who looks at the abolition of performance table in Wales and uh, shows evidence that basically the abolition of this information that, publicly, uh, that is made publicly available led in the long run to a sort of um, reduction in terms of attainment of children in Wales vis-a-vis -vis to comparable areas in, the, in, in, in England predominantly. But my f work is not going to be focusing on these issues predominantly because of two reasons. First of all, the vast majority of the work that has actually been done on accountability mixes a bit concepts of accountability and choice, accountability and competition, so it's really difficult to disentangle the two, but also because accountability systems in the UK have, in a sense, been set up uh, many decades ago, and it will work in a system in which... Uh, Basically, there is a lot of information available on school quality, be the performance table, be the Ofsted reports that parents can access. And in a sense, um, we could quibble about whether accountability system generated perverse incentives for school, for example, to disapply certain students from sitting the test and uh, potentially pushing children at the margin so that they hit the target that are published in the performance table. But we have an idea that the UK system is a system in which accountability has basically been set in place a while ago and in a sense is a building ingredient of this system that we can take for granted. The three aspects I want to focus on are choice, autonomy, and market forces. When we think about choice, we are talking about parents being able to choose the school that they want and uh, funding following their children. And the biggest research questions here that we want to investigate are whether parents actually exercise their choice, whether all parents exercise their choice. Maybe there are differences in terms of how much parents engage in the process of choice depending on their family background. 
And last but not least, we would like to know what parents value in education. Is it hardcore metric of performance that in a system centered around accountability and choice could lead to the spread of best practice and therefore improve educational standards across the board? I think my research is going to show something about these, these issues. The second building block is autonomy. Schools should be able to diversify their offer, partly because of this matching mechanism that we were talking about. If you want to cater for specific needs of specific children and hope that by matching you improve education standard, you should be able to basically tweak the operations of the school and do whatever you think is the best, if you want, comparative advantage along which you want your school to specialize. But there is another essence of behind this autonomy, which is schools should be able to basically react to market incentives, and if they are under demand pressure, should be able to do something that basically allows them to improve and potentially sustain demand. Okay? And last but not least, market forces in terms of mechanisms and incentives should be allowed to play out in the system so that basically there is a sense in which the choice and autonomy are reinforced in terms of the education standard improvement that they could lead about. The most talked about is obviously competition. School, we compete with one another. Parents are going to be responsive to differences in quality. Schools that are not performing well are probably going to be losing demand, so they might be reacting to that in a way that allows to attract more students. Very often there are other important forces behind this market incentives idea, which are, for example, school closures. Failures should be allowed to materialize in the market, and schools that fail should be allowed to exit. New entrants should be allowed in the market so that basically there is unmet demand that is met now by supply, and potentially good schools should be allowed by expand, capturing more market shares. The jargon becomes predominantly economicsy, and this is partly because we're economists or economists of education that made uh, their biggest contribution. But yes, uh, these are the ideas predominantly behind this last bullet point, and I'm hoping I'll get to the point where I can talk about um, the contributions we've made on this. So let me now dive deep into uh, the three blocks on which I've made some contribution, which are choice, autonomy, and, uh, and competition. And I want to start by talking about choice in education. And uh, the aim here is to understand what parents want and whether all parents want the same things, uh, or maybe some parents actually don't want anything and they just don't choose. The work is going to be predominantly uh, mixing a bit of primary school with secondary school uh, information. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you when I'm talking about primaries, when I'm talking about secondaries. And it's predominantly based on English data, and uh, because that's where we have the biggest amount of available information. So I apologize a bit for the English-centric type of approach to this talk. Last but not least, I'm not going to enter into the details of any of these papers, but I think here we just want to convey you the broad uh, ideas of what we found and what we did, rather than actually telling you about the technicalities of, uh, of how we did it. So the first way we adopted uh, to basically look into what parents want from an education is somewhat indirect, by looking through the market capitalization of school quality, arguing basically that because schools are still predominantly uh, taking children on the basis of proximity, uh, or on the basis of strictly informed catchment areas, you can look into the value of a good school into housing market to try and understand basically what parents want by looking at what aspects of school quality basically capitalize into a house price. Which aspects of school quality command higher prices, okay? So what we did was first try to understand 
how much are parents willing to pay for a school, and second, what different aspects of school quality are basically reflected into higher house prices. And the graph here below is basically showing that there is, uh, in the way we've done, a discrete jump in quality of schools if you look across boundaries that delineate whether you can attend a certain set of schools as opposed to not. And on this other plot here, you see the corresponding jump in house prices. Doesn't look very big, but it turns out that basically one standard deviation improvement in school quality, which is a relatively big change into the quality that you might be facing if you live in a certain residential market, as opposed to another one, is associated with a 3% increase in house prices. And back to the time when we did this calculation, this would have corresponded to approximately 20,500 pounds, non-negligible, and actually back in those days corresponding to approximately one year of education in the private sector. Okay? So it's substantial, it's sizable, but what is more interesting is that if you actually look at what parents value in this quality of education, you will find that they value both the value added that the school is able to build on top of their children, that is the capacity to improve the learning and the understanding of a certain subjects, in this case English and maths, as well as the school composition. We measure school composition in a number of ways. We measured it in terms of the prior achievement of students in the school. But what is most striking is that actually the most valued aspect of school composition that we find determines house prices is actually the incidence of free school meal in the children, which is basically suggesting that the lower the poverty rate within the school, the higher the house prices that individuals are willing to pay in order to live close to the school so that they would grant admission to their children to that environment. Okay? So parents seem to be valuing composition as well as hardcore metrics of how good the school is in terms of improving the value added of children. Okay? One big drawback with this type of research is that it's really hard to disentangle whether everybody has the same kind of preferences or whether there is some heterogeneity because well, you don't know the identity of who bought the place, so it's hard to basically study whether different people with different characteristics value school differentially from the housing market. So we try to address this second point in a second paper that is basically co-authored with Steve over there and uh, Marco Bertoni, who is, uh, used to be here at the CEP and now is back in Italy. So what we basically look at here is three cohorts of children that apply for their secondary school in the uh, extended education area of Birmingham and surrounding. In the paper, we focus on a specific question, which is how much parents value schools' conversion to academy status. As already hinted, academies are state schools that are very autonomous in the way in which they are run. And our results seem to suggest that academies tend to be 14% more likely to be rated as the most preferred school option following their conversion, and uh, this corresponds to approximately a willingness to travel of 300 extra meters, which benchmarked against the fact that the most preferred school that parents list is usually 1.5 kilometers away, suggests that basically parents respond to this conversion to academy by a large extent. Okay? We also find significant heterogeneity. Academy schools that are very close to where parents live tend to have a significant increase, much more significant increase, in the rate at which they are the most preferred by parents. 
If you are two and a half kilometers away from where a student live and you become an academy, you're twice as likely to be the most preferred option for a parent. But the most interesting dimension of heterogeneity is that basically it's only non free school meal eligible white parents that seem to express a preference for academies, whereas parents of children that are either free school meal eligible or have non-white background seem to not care so much about academies. Okay? That's a one very specific aspect of what parents look when they think about how to express their choice and how to demand for schools. But in this paper, we're also able to look at other aspects of school, in particular its value-added and final test scores, as well as its composition, to try and understand, unlike in the previous paper, whether there is an extent of heterogeneity in terms of parental preferences given their background. And what we find is that, yes, we confirm previous evidence from the US, and also, once again, from Simon Burgess when looking at primary school, where's these data for secondary, that parents who are more affluent are more willing to travel further away in order for their children to go to a better school, and the parents who are more affluent tend to like schools in which more affluent children also tend to go. But we find that despite being more muted, these same patterns emerge also for families who are less affluent and have poorer family background. So in a sense, these research tell us that yes, there is potentially some issues with heterogeneity in the demand. Parents that are richer and better off tend to like quality more than low socioeconomic status parents. But it is untrue that it's basically only the rich families that care about school quality. The results that we find seem to suggest that also disadvantaged families also value metric of hardcore quality like value-added and final test scores. Okay? So you have to bring this, keep this in mind when we think about potential implication in terms of stratification and segregation in different schools uh, when it comes to basically centering education markets around choice and autonomy. Last but not least, Steve and myself also looked at this issue indirectly by asking ourselves how satisfied exposed parents are with the school that they basically chose and how their satisfaction is related to measures of quality of the school, in particular its value added and the quality of its intake. We also asked ourselves how are children happy in schools that are, for example, high value added and high intake, so we can sort of try to understand whether parents and children like the same things in school, they're similarly satisfied or happy with their choice, and also whether parents actually care about their children's happiness or they only cold and brutally care about value added and composition. And what we find it does not make a good reading. Uh, with some caveats, this is a survey uh, based type of analysis, so we have to rely on parents and children telling us something that is meaningful, but we do quite a lot of our, in our work to basically suggest that this self-reported perception of satisfaction and happiness are meaningful. And also the second caveat is that we cannot disentangle heterogeneity here because the survey that we use is somewhat small, so it's difficult to tease apart whether there are different preferences depending on family background. But what we find is that basically parents' satisfaction is strongly associated with value-added and composition, with a perception that are of a similar magnitude. If you increase, for example, value-added by one standard deviation, which is a significant but no outlandish magnitude, you will find that parental satisfaction goes up by 12%, 13%, irrespective of whether you're increasing value-added or composition. Well, if you look at whether children's happiness at school is affected by this attribute, you will find that there's basically no correlation. 
Okay? So children don't seem to like what the parents like. And even more worrying than that, if you want, parental satisfaction with school is much more strongly, twice as strongly related to value added and composition than it is to their own children's happiness. Okay? So once again, it doesn't make a good reading, but it's good for the debate about school choice and, and, as, and autonomy because it seems to suggest that parents are not wishy-washy. They're actually focusing on hard metrics about how the school is able to improve their children's education. Another little interesting aspect is that school happiness does not capitalize into house prices, conditional on school effectiveness. So once again, if you go around and you look at whether there is a house price premium around happy schools, you will find that once you control for their quality, basically there is no association. Okay? So let me bring you to some concluding remarks, at least on this part of the presentation. If you want, there is good news. Parents actually will choose on the, bur uh, the base of hard quality metrics. This is not good news in abstract. It's good news because if we think about choice and autonomy potentially bringing around imp improvement in education standard, we need to basically have parents that focus on aspects of schools that are potentially spreading best practices and thereby improve uh, quality across the board. So once again, that's good news. The bad news is that there is some heterogeneity in relation to, for example, how parents choose quality, how parents demand academization, and this is potentially perilous because systems that are ch centered around choice and autonomy might lead to more stratification with parents of different backgrounds and children of different backgrounds ending up basically stratified in different schools. This could be masking some deeper problem with the system, which I would label as access to information and access to school. When it comes to access to information, what I'm thinking about is that partly this heterogeneity might be related to the fact that parents of different backgrounds might be accessing information about school quality differentially. Or they might not have access to the same amount of information. Better off parents might be better able to digest the informational content of Ofsted reports and performance table, which put them basically at an advantage when it comes to choosing the best school. Luckily, we have... Uh, some work done on these uh, issues, not by myself, but some colleague at the Paris School of Economics, which basically suggests that there are very cost-effective ways of raising parental awareness of the education benefits of sending children to certain schools. So we have an easy way, if you want, to address this poor lack, poor access to information for families with certain backgrounds. When we think about access to school, the issue is more contentious because a lot of the time, School quality is going to be rationed depending on the place in which you live because proximity and catchment areas are still predominantly determine the school quality that you can basically gain from the place in which you live. And as we saw before, this is basically commanded differential prices in terms of the housing market, which means that people might be basically disadvantaged in terms of choosing good school simply because in the place in which they live, they are sort of cut out from access to good school. And uh, one potential solution, which I've uh, sort of um, put forward to uh, a number of policymakers in the past, is to think about beefing up the number of schools that are uh, uh, sort of admitting pupils using lotteries. This is a very politically contentious claim. Obviously, uh, policymakers and politicians are not very keen because of um, the issues with their constituents being potentially a homeowner that paid high price in order to live close to good schools to see basically a system of lotteries that partly takes away this 
additional price premium that certain estates are commanding because they're close to good school. But there is some movement in this direction. Some of the schools that are new to the market, the free schools, I'll be talking about briefly about these later on, seem to be much more experimental and progressive, if you want, in terms of how they arrange their admissions authority. They're using banding and lotteries to a much larger extent than schools that are instead uh, more likely to be uh, common, if you want, um, state schools like community schools and academies and uh, voluntary aided. So this is all I have to say about school choice, which brings me to the second building block, if you want. And here again, I'll talk about three pieces of work that I've done that contribute to this debate. And that building block is school autonomy. So just to give you some context, schools in the UK are relatively autonomous in terms of how they compare to uh, schools in other international systems. Uh, although the degree of autonomy really varies depending on the exact institutional arrangement of school. Some schools are less autonomous. They are usually the community schools and the voluntary controlled schools. And they're less autonomous because on their governing body there are more representatives from the local authority, the local education government, if you want. And partly it is the local authority that controls admissions and writes the hiring um, uh, contract with uh, the, the, the teaching staff. Other schools are more free. These are the voluntary aided and foundation schools. They are sort of run as private public partnerships. The governing body has many more representatives from the private sector, be this a charity or a religious group. And they are also more in charge of their own admissions and uh, of basically signing the contract with the teaching staff that they hire. So they are more autonomous in the way in which they manage the operation. Community schools and voluntary control are about 60% of the secondary market, uh, foundation school, and um, voluntary aided schools were approximately 40% of the market. I'm saying where because a lot of these distinctions have been disrupted by the arrival of what is basically the embodiment of autonomy in this system, which is uh, academies. Academies are schools that basically opt out almost completely from the control of the local authority, so they're much more free in, w in the ways in which they run their operation from that day-to-day -day management, but also from the structuring of the academic activities over the year, the length of the uh, school day, the length of the school year. They are also somewhat freer in terms of um, the subjects that they decide to teach, even though they still have to teach English, maths, and science, and they're also more free in the way in which they manage their personnel uh, practices there. Basically, they're hiring and firing authorities for their teaching uh, staff, and they are much more proactive, allegedly, in using performance-based pays and uh, other aspects of remuneration that could bring potentially some uh, benefits from uh, basically arranging your education system around a more academized uh, setup. Uh, there are two types of academies, and I'll try to be a bit more specific uh, when I go through some of the work I've done. Uh, they were initially introduced by the Labour government in 2002 as a remedial intervention that would take over failing school, assign them to a um, private sector or charitable sector sponsor with the aim of basically turning the school around and make it a, a shiny success. And uh, this um, expansion of academies basically uh, occurred at a gentle pace until 2010, when basically the new coalition government that was elected in May ushered in a reform that brought to the market a new beast, the converter academies, which is basically a school that is not forced to become autonomous and pair up with a sponsor, but is a school that basically opts out because it has high-performing results 
of the uh, system under which it will be controlled by the local authority and basically tries to uh, manage its own activity as it sees fit. Okay? I'll uh, talk about the distinction once again when I get to uh, converter. But first of all, I want to talk about some work that has been done uh, on uh, some of these uh, other type of schools that are still considered somewhat more autonomous even before the arrival of academy schools in the system. And these are basically the voluntary-aided schools and the foundation school that I was talking about. And this piece of work that I'm going to be briefly summarizes, once again done with Steve Gibbons over there in the audience, basically was a piece of uh, research that was focused mainly on the question of whether faith schools deliver better value-added, better educational improvement for children in the primary education stage. But it turns out that you can basically cut this paper in a number of different ways because you have some religious schools that are autonomous and some that are not mainly the voluntary-aided are autonomous, the voluntary-controlled are not, and some autonomous schools that are secular and some that are not. Predominantly, the uh, foundation schools are autonomous but non-religion. So we basically run a horse race between all the possible combinations, autonomous faith, autonomous non-faith, non-autonomous non-faith, non-autonomous faith, I've lost count, sorry. And uh, we try to understand what adds value, if anything. Okay? There is a huge problem here. Children that go into the faith or the autonomous system are not representative of the whole population, so they are different from children that are in, for example, community, non-autonomous, non-religious schools. So we try to deal with these issues as well as we can by controlling from prior attainments in a very detailed manner, by looking at children that basically reside in the same postcode but attend two types of schools that are different, but mainly by looking basically forward and asking ourselves, where are these children going at the end of their primary education stage? Do they stay in the faith school? Do they stay in the autonomous system? Or do they switch back to a community school, which is, once again, non-autonomous, non-faith, or to one of the other arrangements? The idea is that the stayers that either always go faith or never go faith are very different. The switchers are a bit mixed and more comparable. There are guys that potentially benefited a bit, but not convincingly so. And uh, so their unobservables might be more similar. And so we focus predominantly on analysis on basically comparing guys that switch at the end of primary when they move to secondary to try and infer the contribution of fate and autonomous arrangements, netting out basically the differences in background, some of which might be unobservable. So we find very little evidence that faith and autonomy confer substantial advantages. The most generous reading is that faith does nothing, and autonomous school arrangement do something, but it's very small. It's about one percentile improvement, or two to three percent of a standard deviation increase in the value added from the beginning to the ends of primary education. And once we basically switch to the switchers approach, we find that neither autonomy nor religious ethos actually bring any benefit to the students. And this is irrespective of students' family background. Okay? So not very promising. But here is something more promising. The impact of sponsored academies. The vast majority of work on the analysis of sponsored academies has actually been done by my other recurrent colleague, who is Steve Machin, uh, who is basically the leading researcher with many co-authors, including myself, on the question of whether sponsored academies are delivering improved performance uh, in the education system. 
Once again, sponsored academies are those that were pushed forward by the uh, uh, Labour government uh, back in 2002 up to 2010. They are a small operation. They are a remedial intervention that tries to take the most disadvantaged and the most failing schools out of the state's system or the local authority-run system and gives this school basically to a private sponsor, sometimes it's a football company, uh, or a charitable organization. Sometimes it's even um, a hedge fund organization like the well-known example of our school with the hope that basically an injection of private sector ethos and an injection of autonomy in terms of management of the school and hiring and firing activities is going to turn the school around and improve the standards and the achievement of children. Steve and his co-author Andy Ailes have a very clever way of bypassing problems of selection of children into academies. You can imagine that once the school converts, it will start to attract different parents because of my previous work showing that basically parents with different backgrounds like academies to a larger and lesser extent. And there is indeed evidence that academies follow, following conversion change quite significantly the composition of their intake no matter whether this reflects demand, most likely, as opposed to covert selection by academies, less likely. So Andy and Steve basically look at children that were already in the school, they had already applied for that school, they had already been enrolled in that school prior to conversion. And they call this approach a legacy student approach, which is similar to some academic research in the US where this approach has been called grandfathering approach. It's very clever, it bypasses selection, and what they find is that Academies, over the course of four years, after they've basically been allowed some time to turn their operation around, are able to improve students' achievement by up to 30% of a standard deviation. This is really big in terms of what we know in terms of what works in education. And uh, this is quite promising. And uh, what I've contributed to this uh, subject is try to understand whether children at different levels of ability are benefiting more or less from basically the school becoming an academy. And this is what is plotted here in this diagram. What we did back in those days was trying to look at uh, academies that converted earlier on, that is up to 2007, with the data finishing it up to 2013, as opposed to academies that converted a bit later, after 2007, but uh, with achievement still materializing before 2013. And then we rank students in terms of their ability within the school distribution. And what you can see is that the vast majority of the benefit is coming from basically children that are above the median, but especially in the top 20% and in the top 10%, okay? The other interesting thing to notice from this graph is that the late converters, at least in the data that we analyzed, did not generate significant performance benefits. This is not because these schools are radically different from early academies. It's because where we truncate the data, the vast majority of these schools had not had enough time to turn themselves around. So I'm quite hopeful that if I had looked for more years of achievement, these schools would have generated something similar to the performance of the early converters, which is exactly what Steve and Andy find in their work. Okay? Two points to take away from this. There is a possibility, therefore, that academies are actually improving their performance, mainly by improving the attainments of children who are at the top in that school. It's kind of worrying. But on the other hand, even after conversion, academies of the sponsored nature remain 
fairly disadvantaged schools, which means that actually these children at the top of the quality distribution of children within the school are actually still not very advantaged children, which seems to suggest that actually academy might be working in turning the performance around for children who are actually relatively disadvantaged. Okay? Some hope there. Okay? Very good. So I could have ranked these children basically on the distribution of national achievement. And in fact, the picture is somewhat more promising with more nuanced results, with everybody basically being pushed up a bit. Okay, so let me then tell you how the landscape dramatically changed when the government basically changed in 2010 and uh, uh, Michael Gove pushed forward for uh, a complete revamping, if you want, of the model of academies by bringing into existence a new object called the academy converter. If you remember, the sponsored academies are not schools that decide to become autonomous. They're schools that are forced to become autonomous under the leadership, if you want, of a sponsor. Hence the name sponsored academies. The converters are completely different schools. They are schools that, at least at the beginning when the program was being pushed forward in 2010 and 2011, are outstanding from the point of view of Ofsted uh, records. And they are allowed to become academies. 50% of those took up that option, roughly speaking. So these schools are outstanding, good schools that free themselves up from the control of the local authority because they just want to manage their, their operation as they see fit. A completely different object from the one we were talking about before, which was the sponsored academy, which was instead forced as part of a remedial education program. The converter academy were part of a wholesale, if you want, uh, uh, autonomization of the education system in which basically the government was trying to basically inject quasi-market choice and competition to a larger and growing extent. It's important to put things in perspective. Labor academies, sponsored academies were approximately 200 up to 2010 when the government changed and doubled up to approximately 400 uh, in 2015-2016. But Converter academies were zero because they were not existing in 2010, and they quickly became the most predominant object in the education landscape, basically attracting approximately 65 to 70 percent of children in the latest data that we observe, which is approximately 16, 17. So really huge rapid expansion within six years, and in fact, 80 percent of the academy expansion between 2010 and 2016 occurs along the converter side with um, sponsored academies playing a, a relatively marginal role. Another important distinction is that at the beginning it was only outstanding schools that were allowed to convert, but over time, basically, schools of different quality, good schools with outstanding feature, thinking about the Ofsted grade again, but also satisfactory schools, if they were teaming up with schools of better quality, were allowed to convert, which suggested over time the incentives to perform well so that you could be allowed to convert, or maybe not be forced to convert, given that at some point the government wanted every school, especially the marginally one, uh, marginal one, to become an academy. This suggested incentives for school to basically put a lot of effort into improving their test score just before their decision to convert or not, suggests that we should think about analyzing the quality of converters and how they affect the student's achievement by basically stratifying their sample and looking first 
at outstanding schools that were allowed to convert right at the beginning, then good schools that were phased in at a bit later stages, and then all other schools that were basically the latest round of academy conversion pushed by the government, uh, which I think by then was no longer a coalition government. It was probably a, a fully conservative government. So another important point to bear in mind before we talk about the benefits of converters academies is that what I have suggested seems to be suggesting quite clearly that converters and sponsored are completely different objects. So if you want to think about extrapolating the performance and what we have learned from the sponsored experience to what converter schools might be doing, you're actually in for a disappointment because you might be doing something that is actually not, um, if you want, supported by the data in terms of the quality of the schools that are converting under the labor program as opposed to the coalition uh, and then conservative government program. Okay, So Andy, Steve, and myself have a precisely a paper that makes that point. The quality of the schools that convert under the labor program are basically uh, positioning them within the bottom 10% in terms of the quality distribution. The converters are among the 20 top performers in the country, especially at the beginning, which makes the two programs completely uncomparable, which means that you cannot think, oh, they did well, so the converters must be doing well. That extrapolation doesn't work. They are completely different objects. Okay? So, Steve... Uh, and the other guy called Matteo, myself, and then Gabriel, uh, is he still there at the back? No, he's gone, but he was there at the back before, have done some work on this and tried to basically tease out the performance benefits of uh, academy converters. We find some positive evidence when we focus on outstanding schools, and they seem to be delivering, after four years of operation, up to 10% of a standard deviation improvement in their children test scores. This is approximately one-third of what the labor academies were delivering in terms of performance in improvement after four years. So that is already putting things in, uh, if you want, in relative comparison. But when it comes to other type of academy converters, the schools that were good prior to conversion and the schools that were of any other Ofsted rating, we find no evidence that basically following conversion, their, improve, their achievement improves. Okay? So it's a bit of a wash. For 30% of schools that are outstanding and half of those become academies, there is evidence that there is a relative improvement, although this is not as big as for the labor academies. For all the other schools that convert, we can't find any evidence that basically at the secondary level, there is a substantial kick up in performance. Okay? Sandra over there has done some work on primary schools and she finds even more grim results. Doesn't matter if you look at outstanding schools, good schools, satisfactory school, they all seem to deliver zero performance improvement following conversion, okay? So this is in stark contrast, once again, to the labor program, and broadly speaking, cast some doubt on this idea that autonomy in general can deliver uh, improvement in standards, even when coupled with a system in which choice seems to be uh, pervasive and, uh, if you want, with some heterogeneity characterizing the way in which parents relate themselves to school. A couple of uh, concluding points here. Uh, one of the recent trends in uh, the education arena is the emergence of multi-academy trust. These are basically chains of schools that manage predominantly sponsored academies, but more and more uh, 
converter academies. And there are a number of questions that you would like to really ask and yourselves and be able to answer. For example, are maths really autonomous? And the schools that opt in into these maths, are they actually free schools that operate with whatever day-to-day -day management practices they want, or do they actually buy into a system that is as prescriptive, if not more, than the local authority from which they free themselves? There's not much evidence on these things, but luckily, well, myself and some co-authors, uh, not ideally at Queen Mary for once, are trying to provide some evidence on these issues and filling this gap. So there is possibly in the future some more uh, material for you to basically digest, which uh, tries to, first of all, disentangle whether all maths are as prescriptive as sometimes it is made out there in the media, and also whether different maths arrangements deliver different performance gains for schools that convert to academy and then join one of these potentially very centralized or very decentralized maths. Um, something I want to say about math and uh, teacher labor market, but I'll postpone that to a later discussion. The other thing that we need to think about when we arrange a system um, of education that is centered on choice, but especially on uh, autonomy, is that we need to ask ourselves who checks the quality of these schools if they are somewhat allowed to operate without the same checks and balances as uh, prior to conversion, especially for the schools that are outstanding. But more importantly than that, if we think about multi-academy trust, there is an inspection regime for schools, but there is not such a corresponding thing at the level of math itself. And I'm hoping that Amy can basically tell us something about these topics later on. Of course, parents can always vote for schools with their feet by relocating to a different part of the city in which they think there are better schools or a different part of the country, or they can vote out of bad schools if their performance decreases, but there is a sense in which preferences are somewhat sticky, and there is also this issue of heterogeneity with not all parents choosing as actively and on the same basis with the same metrics. So we need to really ask ourselves, how do we nest an accountability regime in a system that is becoming predominantly more and more autonomous? And once again, uh, I'm hoping that my discussion will, uh, will touch on these issues. Which, mm, this thing is really bugging me. I had one that I brought myself and I should have used that one. And again, I press once and it moves twice. Okay, sorry. Five minutes. Uh, maybe I'll take uh, seven because we started late. But yes, th the last part of the talk is going to be devoted to talking about uh, competition. If you want, if you remember, this is the last building block of systems centered around autonomy and choice, accountability, choice, autonomy, and, and then competition. There is a large literature in the US uh, on these issues. Some of this is uh, work that basically looks at competition in the sense of tibu choice of individuals relocating from one jurisdiction to another. So competition in this sense is linked to the ability of parents to basically relocate across the space. This is not the notion of competition and choice that we have in this country. Very often it is how much can you choose conditional on where you live and how much schools are forced to compete given the arrangement of choice uh, that parents have um, as an option. In the US, there is a literature that look at these issues, that is choice and competition conditional on place of residence. It is mainly looking at individuals that are given a choice to basically travel to further away school 
for example, through busing programs or other initiatives that give parents more choice. For example, they are lotteried into good schools that otherwise would have not been in their choice set. But I think this type of literature confounds two different concepts. One is the concept of choice that pertains to how many schools a child can choose from and whether these schools are potentially catering for his or her needs better. So it's an argument about matching between school quality and pupil needs, which is different from school competition, which is how many other educational providers are in the market, potentially subtracting away demand from me. Okay? So these two concepts are, something that are, are two things that need to be separated from the conceptual point of view. And this is exactly a point that Steve and the other Steve was not here, we try to make in a joint paper where we basically look at primary school education and try to understand whether choice, a feature of pupils as opposed to competition, a feature of school adds a value in terms of educational progress. Let me also say that there is quite a big literature in the UK which looks at competition and achievement, but it's much more um, focused on correlation as opposed to on causation. And I think, broadly speaking, uh, we need to tease out causal link between competition and achievement if we want to guide policymakers. Plus, we are at the LFC, so we want to know the causes of things as opposed to the correlates of things. Okay? It doesn't really sound good. Know the correlates of things. Know the causes of things is much more punchy, right? <laughs> Very good. So it's the right place to look at these issues. Okay, so what we do is basically to think about choice as a property of student, competition as a property of school, and we try to basically measure these things as follows. First, we look at children, and we ask ourselves, where do you live? And uh, we identify their postcode of residence. Then we look at the schools not far from this child, and we ask ourselves, how far did the children in those schools in the previous years traveled? in order to basically gain admission to these schools. This allows us to basically start drawing circles around schools based on attendance patterns of previous cohort, which basically delineates de facto catchment areas which are otherwise difficult to track in the data, which we then use to basically look back at the postcode of the child of resident and ask ourselves, how many schools catchment area encompass the place in which you live? Okay? This is our notion that basically a child in a given residence could have attended one or maybe two or maybe three schools because children in previous generation living in that postcode were in a sense in the catchment area of that specific institution. This is what we call a choice proxy for the student. And then we go back to the school and ask ourselves, now given its intake, how many schools did the children of that school could have chosen from, that is a proxy for how many other educational providers that schools would have had to compete with, and we call this our proxy for the competitive pressure under which the school is. Okay? So that's how we do it. This school would be one in which there is a student that can only attend that school and no other school, so it's got a zero, the school is completely monopolistic. Here you got the student that is encompassed by this school's catchment area, but also three other catchment area. So he could have attended three other schools. This guy could have attended two other schools based on their catchment area. This other guy could have attended only one other school. So if you do the average, this school turns out to have 1.5 in terms of the competition index that we attribute, which means that this school on average has to compete with another 1.5 education provider. Okay? And then we run a regression where we look at whether 
children's progress during the education, primary education stage is associated to choice and competition, trying to deal with issues of endogeneity and causality by basically exploiting the fact that if you live close to an education authority boundary, you are unlikely to cross that boundary to attend school on the other side because of constraint in the institutional setup, which means that children that live close to education authority boundaries have less choice. Same argument, schools that are close to local authority education boundaries are facing less competition because the children that they usually intake are actually uh, less likely to have a lot of choice, okay? So we use this as a, basically a way to bypass endogeneity issues, and what we find is that choice doesn't matter. Across the board, choice as a feature does not seem to be associated with increases in value-added. Competition is also not strongly associated to value-added. It's only in a specific sector of the education system, the one represented by more autonomous schools, which back in the days were voluntary aid and foundation because there were no primary primary academies when we did this analysis. For these schools, we see that one school increase in the competition index, which is approximately one standard deviation, can increase achievement by up to 20% of a standard deviation, with two caveats. It's not very precisely estimated. It's got a 10% confidence interval, uh, confidence uh, um, significance level for those of you who are interested in the uh, statistical precision of this estimate, and it also only pertains to approximately 20, 25% of the pupils in our sample. So competition can have effect, but it's related to a smaller sector and is not very precisely estimated. I'm gonna try and quickly ram in in three minutes, two more papers and then some conclusions, and then I'll uh, sort of hand over to uh, Amy and Julian again. So Steve and I did more work uh, uh, um, in, in these areas. Uh, we looked at whether Competitive schools tend to be more stratified in terms of the um, achievement of the children that they basically tend to intake. And we find that although our evidence is somewhat imprecise, it's quite suggestive. More competition is associated with more stratified schools, which means schools that tend to be more homogeneous, which could be worrying because it could be that the benefits of competition get concentrated among a handful of children that are able to attend a certain type of school. And it could also be that if peer effects are sizable and significant, children that are like, lucky and go to good schools tend to benefit from these. Children that are instead sort of segregated out into lesser quality schools might be basically losing out from good interaction. And then we looked at uh, secondary schools and we asked ourselves whether schools that are in a more urban, dense environment tend to perform better than more rural schools. We exploit students' transition from primary to secondary education and look at changes in the urban density of the schools that they attend to try to bypass causality and uh, uh, endogeneity issues. And what we find is that basically, schools in more dense urban environment tend to perform better. And uh, this is clearly related to a number of schools that are within two kilometers of uh, a school's premises, which seem to be suggested that basically this is because these schools have to compete with other schools or because children are basically uh, exposed to more choice. In this paper, we don't disentangle between choice and competition because we have no way of doing it. The effect is statistically significant. 
but it's small. It's approximately a 3% increase in value added for a reasonably good and sizable increase in this uh, urban environment density, which seems to suggest once again that if there is any benefit to be had from competition, it's likely to be small and not terribly sizable. So a couple of concluding slides and then I'm done. Um, all in all, there is no evidence that choice, not choice in the sense of parents exercising choice, there is evidence on that, but the choice that is the matching argument of certain education provider match to children with specific needs has a big impact on educational standards. Competition, on the other hand, is a big mixed bag. For schools that are more autonomous, it seems to be increasing standards. For schools that are not, it's not particularly relevant. Some concluding points this time might be different because now uh, basically we have uh, many more academies in the system injecting more choice and competition in the education arena. So we are planning to basically rerun some of our analysis on the effect of competition, once again with Steve, the other Steve who is not here, Gabriel that was here and now is gone, and try to understand whether the effect of competition in the education market is stiffer now that we have academies, and this has generated bigger improvement standards across the board. Um, there is also an issue with market incentives not being terribly sharp. There is not so many school closures in the system and there's actually not very many incentives for good schools to expand. Actually, there's also constraints on school expansion which come from finding a suitable site, very often planning regulation uh, sort of hamper the incentives the school have in terms of expanding vis-a-vis -vis increasing demand because they're good school. So there is possibly an issue with redesigning the incentives in the system if we hope to deliver more quality improvements. And then there is also an issue with alleviating some other supply side friction in the sense that there is actually not much evidence that new schools have come to the market in, uh, in this period to bring in more places in the education system, the only examples we have are free schools. They're now a relatively big size of the education market. There's approximately 500 of them uh, at the latest count, but there is no evidence on the benefits of free schools or children achievement. So they could be adding places in the system, but not good quality places in the system, because so far there has not been a very uh, thorough evaluation. And once again, with Gabriel, uh, we're planning to do some work in this field. We have some unique data on free schools, which we hope will fill some of this gap. I'm not going to be talking about teachers. That's too much of a complicated issue in, uh, in uh, such a short period of time. But yes, um, good quality teachers are in short supply in the system, and they're not easy to identify ex ante. So we need to think about also to potentially reform the profession and the incentive in teachers' uh, labor market in a way that generates more quality teaching and potentially improves, uh, if you want, uh, quality across the board, bearing in mind that even if we are able to uh, bypass some of this friction, the supply of quality teachers is not completely elastic, so we need to think about how to bring more quality teaching into the system, um, which is somewhat a hard thing to think about. So. Let me wrap up with, uh, rather than a summary of what I just said, uh, a sort of a funny slide here to conclude. Uh, back in 2014, when uh, the academy program was expanding very fast, there were some old competing views about what he was doing. Michael Gove uh, was asking here and here uh, from the children of this primary school, seemed to be suggesting that basically academies were 
a transformative force. They had completely uh, um, changed the education landscape and they had basically completely um, uh, wiped out this idea that there was a bog standard education which would be trapping individuals in poor quality schools. A cartoonist uh, around the same time that uh, posted his uh, sketch on, on the web seemed to be suggesting that actually academies were not that transformative. They were still bog standards, but they were sort of rebranding themselves by saying that they were aiming high, but actually not delivering very much. Uh, I'm pretty sure that the um, answer lies somewhere in between. And uh, if you stay tuned for more work uh, on this channel, then in a number of years' time, you'll be able to attend a second public policy lecture uh, on uh, what the latest results of my research agenda are going to be like. And I'll leave it at that, and uh, thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Olmo. Um, and now, Amy. <clears throat> Hi. Uh, can everyone hear me? Um, thank you so much, um, Olmo, for such an interesting lecture, absolutely rammed full uh, with lots of evidence from your career so far. Uh, and given that you've uh, invited me here to be your discussant, I just wanted to use this opportunity to thank you for your continued engagement with me in Ofsted and the fact that your, your work is so relevant to policymakers. Um, at Ofsted, we are very interested and we have this sort of insatiable appetite for research at the moment. We're expanding our, our research function and we have now a two-year programme of research and evaluation. And Omo's work and, and the work of many others will, uh, I'm sure, influence our thinking in this area, uh, particularly some research that we'll be doing on multi-academy trusts. Um, and before I just pick up on some um, thoughts on the implications of, of, uh, of Omo's work to um, Ofsted, I just wanted to get a sense of who is in the room. Um, could, could I ask people to hold their hands up if they're an expert or a researcher in education or schools? Okay, so that, I'd say a third. Um, and hold your hands up if you're a researcher in another field. Okay, I think that was, that's the remainder. Okay. Thank you, that's really useful. So I, I will try and keep my comments at the more general level, um, just to make sure that um, I, I'm easily understood. So uh, three things that I would take from, from your work, Olmo, um, for Ofsted, and Ofsted is obviously a, a large provider of information on, on school quality. And I think the first question for us is, what information should we provide and how? And you had a series of slides around um, what parents want. And I think it's worth reflecting that parents are a large consumer of Ofsted information, but they are not the only consumer. And our audiences range from teachers, school leaders, uh, government, uh, but parents are our core audience. Uh, and so I, I want to just pick up on, on that point um, and, and really reflect on what we could do to make our information more digestible, as you, as you call it. Secondly, um, how should we judge education quality? We are just one player in the school accountability landscape. Um, there's at least one other, which is league tables, and there are an array of other um, people, organisations, agencies that have something to say around what... Uh, 
how schools should be held to account. And so it's important that Ofsted's uh, work contributes in a really constructive way to the accountability system uh, and balances some of the counter Uh, some of the forces in the accountability system more generally, particularly the focus on data and metrics. Uh, And thirdly, uh, a lot of your work is focused on um, academy schools and the the sort of explosion that we've had in uh, nominally school uh, school autonomy. And the the locus of uh, autonomy and responsibility for school standards is changing and Omer alluded to it in, in the form of multi-academy trusts. And that has really, really broad implications for how we hold schools and maths to account. And so I want to use the, 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 the final point just, just to elaborate on what we want to do at Ofsted and what we're do, doing currently within the current legislative framework to make sure that we're holding the right people to account. So on, on the first point then, so what information should we provide and how? So Omo describes uh, publicly available information as a, as a necessary ingredient uh, for choice-based education systems. And we obviously provide a very large amount of uh, evidence, uh, information on school quality. We provide lengthy um, inspection reports that are, based, that are risk-based. So we uh, provide reports on schools that are poor quality more frequently than we provide reports on schools that are of a higher quality. And we actually don't inspect unless there is uh, a reason to outstanding, outstanding schools. So there's a limit, limitation to the uh, evidence that we provide. But we provide lengthy reports and we also provide a judgment. Outstanding, good, requires improvement uh, or inadequate. And we provide sub-judgments for each of our four areas that we look at in uh, the school's framework. That is teaching learning assessment leadership and management, uh, personal development and welfare, and pupil outcomes. So that's the basics of what we do. And as I said earlier, we have a number of different audiences. So parents, parents, we we hypothesize, make choices on the basis of our judgments. Um, Not just make choices, but they take action. Uh, So they might uh, lobby their school, complain about a, a school, take action, become a governor, be involved in uh, their school in a number of variety of ways, not not just um, by exercising choice. Uh, And so they're our core audience. Um, But we also have school leaders and governors. Uh, They're responsible for transforming the school once we leave. Uh, That's not our job. Uh, Teachers who can deduce what we think good quality education looks like on the basis of what we say in our research and in our reports, and government that takes intervening action following inspection. So uh, if we judge a a local authority maintains school to be inadequate, then uh, the government will convert that school to be uh, an academy. That's the converter academies that, um, sorry, that's the sponsored academies that uh, Omer referred to. Now it's fair to say that our reports currently are written for school leaders. They're not written for parents. Uh, parents don't really like them, and I'm, I'm very happy to hold my hand up and, and say that on the basis of, of some uh, uh, research that we've done, uh, some focus groups that we've um, done with parents. And although parents are, aren't a homogenous group and we have to um, you know, be very wary of making broad generalizations, on the whole, our reports are far too jargony and 
have sort of professional idiosyncratic words in them for them to be really digestible by parents. So, however, school leaders do generally like what our reports contain in terms of the content, uh, in terms of the technical language and the structure. Now, that's not to say that we won't be looking at revising those when we, when we come to uh, um, introduce a new inspection framework in 2019. Uh, but, but I think on the basis of who likes our, our reports and who reads them the most, it's fair to say our, our um, information is, is read by school leaders and is for school, lead, school leaders at the moment. Um, now, how, does, how much of this does uh, how much of this matters? Uh, so I would argue quite a lot. Um, we have parents that are we, we call them skimmers or deep divers. Uh, parents that want to just see the headline, and that's enough uh, for them to make a, a sensible choice. And that's dependent on the choices that they have available to them. So if they have a, a good series of, of, of choices, um, they have good and outstanding schools available to them, then actually having, having um, just the, the information on the off Ofsted judgment is enough for them to, to make a choice. If, however, they have... Uh, a completely different, wider set of, of uh, choices available to them in terms of Ofsted judgments, they will want to look uh, in more detail at the, at the reports. So we have, uh, we have skimmers and we have deep divers and we have a range of, of parents <coughs> in between. And we also uh, look at how frequently parents use their information. So every, every year for the last uh, two or three years, we've run a parental attitude survey and actually, I mean, th there's limitations with the survey because it's all self-reported. Uh, but parents report that they uh, use our, um, they read our report, sorry, our information influences their choices almost as much as word of mouth. And that's quite interesting because we, we sort of assume that actually speaking to your family, speaking to your friends is going to have a, a broad influ influence on the choices you make. Uh, but as I say, that's, that's self-reported and we, we aren't able to distinguish different types of parents and how, how much they use our information differently. Um, but I think it's interesting to think, uh, so I think uh, around 46% of parents uh, use information to make a choice about schools or say they, say they do. Uh, roughly two-fifths of parents will read the whole report, but not in every detail. And 10% report just reading the front page and summary judgments. So that just shows you that the variety of ways that our work is used. But as I said, words like disadvantaged, words like pupil premium, attainment gap, these are all words that you and I would use quite frequently, um, but they're not words that parents would either associate their child with or would understand as being relevant for their particular decision. So uh, what do parents, what, what sort of information would parents actually like then? So we, we actually tested a couple of different products um, with parents to think about how we could change our information. What they really like is um, information on uh, how distinctive the school is and what the experience of that pupil is like in that school. Um, so when we showed them information that, that said what a typical school day looked like or what that school excels in, which makes it different from, a, from another school down the ro road, they really liked that. It really brought it to life for them. But this is not the normal business of Ofsted. We are very used to judging and evaluating, and our core business is to come to a judgment about um, the quality of a, of a particular school. But we don't want to lose that potential 
uh, for commenting on the uniqueness of a provider. And it's something that we'll be thinking about when we come to look at our inspection framework, uh, about how we, uh, what the balance is between forming a judgment and saying something interesting and useful about a school that you wouldn't get from any other place. Uh, so, so that's what we'll be looking at, and, and th there's also another side to our interaction with parents, and some of you may know um, either parents in the room or, who, or people who have who've done some research in this area, that we, um, we, we conduct a survey of parents, and we publish that alongside our inspection reports. It's called Parent View, and parents can see the responses that other parents uh, make about the quality of the, the school, and we'll be looking at how we can increase the use of this uh, because, again, um, anecdotally and in focus groups, parents have said they really like knowing what other parents think about schools. Um, this creates an opportunity to sort of democratise the information that otherwise you'd just get from the school playground or your social network. And, uh, but we're limited by the fact that we don't really get much of a response because there's quite lengthy registration process for parent view. So we'll be looking at how we can utilise that more effectively to make sure that we have relevant information for parents. I've got one minute left. So moving on to the concept of education quality. Uh, I've briefly explained what we, uh, what we evaluate and what our framework looks like. I said earlier that um, we need to look at the, how, Ofsted's role in the accountability framework more generally and how we counterbalance some of the other forces, such as league tables and the pressure for uh, better and better data. And uh, our Chief Inspector Amanda Spielman has, spoke, has spoken quite, in quite um, le lengthy terms about the, us focusing really on the substance of education and not losing, losing sight of what it is we want schools to do. And uh, data and, and, and league tables provide just one partial picture of performance, and they're limited in a number of ways. So firstly, exam results are just an indicator of education quality. They're not the same as edu education quality itself. They're an indicator, they're a measure. There's also a lag between exam results and the education that's provided, at least two or three years, sometimes more. And so exam results won't give you a current picture of education quality. And thirdly, exam results only provide a partial picture of the whole school experience, and there are lots of other things that make up a good school. So for these reasons, we'll be looking more closely at the curriculum and the real substance of what is taught in schools to make sure that accountability system overall looks at the right things. Data on the one hand, which is left to lead tables, and the substance and the qualitative aspect of what is distinctive about a school and what the curriculum looks like. So... That's, that's my reflections on, on the, the, the point around the accountability and what Ofsted can do. Very quickly on multi-academy trusts. The locus of... Uh, so Omer made a very interesting point around autonomy and how, how, how many schools within multi-academy trusts are really autonomous. And it's worth just re reflecting on the legal status of academies within MATS. Uh, and in most cases, the, the, um, the contract with the, the government lies with the trust. And that means that academies within that trust aren't, don't, don't have the responsibility unless they're delegated it for the, the performance of their individual school. And we've got to reflect that in accountability terms. 
So at the moment, Ofsted has the power to uh, look at, um, to inspect academies that are within MATS in batched, in focus visits. So we can look at a number of different academies within the same MAT and come to a view about the performance of that MAT. And we're going to try and uh, extend and, 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 and um, maximize how we look at MATS through that current model. But we've said very clearly that we would like the power to inspect multi-academy trusts directly. They're the ones that have the legal responsibility and accountability, uh, so they're the ones that we should be evaluating. <clears throat> and I'm really grateful for this, uh, the new Secretary of State has made a number of clarifications around Ofsted's role and our role in the accountability system that I hope will make this easier for us in the future. Okay. Thank you very much. We have a minute or two for questions. Um, I think what we'll do is we'll take, we'll take two or three questions and then ask Olmo uh, or Amy to uh, respond. So, um, open for, uh, for questions. Yes? Perhaps you could just say who you are. And, uh. I could say who I am. Hi. Um, my name is Georgiana. Thank you both. Um, I'm a school teacher. Um, just a, a few questions. First of all, the student performance, could I double-check, is that focused and measured only on English and maths or overall achievement? Um, and then both of you talked about um, accountability. Where do you see the difference between accountability and responsibility? And uh, Amy, you in particular mentioned that um, Ofsted, rightly so, will not visit, will not inspect schools that are deemed to be outstanding and will be more focused on schools that are seem, well, seem to be failing. Um, now, from that point of view, outstanding schools seem to have a wider remit for responsibility. Um, they're allowed to be more responsible, whereas failing schools seem to be focused on accountability with the pressure that puts on the school, the trust, and the academy. Um, so my question really is, how do we actually measure student achievement, and then how does Ofsted account for that achievement, and how is that regarded? Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> At the back there. Hi, um, my name is David Stoker. I was a data analyst, then a primary school teacher, then I... I left, um, like many, many teachers. Um, <laughs> uh, I think it's hemorrhaging talent at the moment. Um, my perception of the accountability system is that over-testing kids is like trying to bake bread. You keep taking it out the oven, and then it can't bake. <laughs> and I suppose... I wonder uh, where the autonomy of teachers are in this marketplace because they're voting with their feet to, to not teach. And do you think the system is over-engineered? I suppose I'm very biased with that. And I wanted to raise the concept of social mobility because if your results... Well, okay, the social mobility unit have all left uh, under this government. And... If you, the evidence showed that schools seem to stratify and that markets don't improve choice. So is there any hope of people who are deprived uh, becoming more mobile and improving their, their lives? Thank you. 
Okay. The last question. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. My name is Paul Morris. I'm Professor of Comparative Education. Could you hold the microphone closer? Uh, Paul Morris, Professor of Comparative Education at UCL. Um, There seems to be a couple of elephants in the room, which um, I think uh, one of which Amy has touched on and the previous speaker. The first relates to as schools have gained autonomy, we know many of them have used that autonomy to influence and change their intake and reduce their intake of less advantaged pupils. Right. That really needs to be addressed in in the data you're analysing. Secondly, um, probably the most common term you used throughout your talk was quality, with variations such as hardcore quality, hard quality metrics. And I, I, I really... Your, your take, your, these measures are presumably Ofsted scores, GCSE scores. We, we know the focus on things like Ofsted on the uh, main subjects, the English baccalaureate on a limited number of subjects, has driven out to the margins a whole range of subjects, especially in the creative arts. So, you know... Is that not reducing the quality of education and, and providing the one requirement to schools to provide a broad curriculum? Uh, I, okay, I, thank you. Okay, well, three uh, areas, really. The um, uh, quality of education and how we measure it, in, focus on English and maths is a bad thing. Um, accountability and responsibility, difference between. Um, autonomy of teachers um, and uh, related to that, autonomy of schools um, leading to selection of, of pupils. Um, Omo, would you like to...? Yeah. Uh, am I still being mic'd? Maybe I'll use this one. Um, yes, I'll, I'll leave the accountability versus responsibility to Amy. seem a bit more direct to her, so I'll, I'll dodge the bullet in that sense. Uh, but yes, uh, the, some of the, the, the analysis you saw was basically focused on English and maths. Uh, but not all of it. Some of it was also looking at more generally GCSE achievement across a broader range of outcomes, uh, which um, could potentially lead me to uh, the other question that has been raised here at the end, uh, whether quality is only GCSE in certain subjects and uh, hardcore evidence on offset expansion, uh, inspection. That's, that's how we have measured it. Um, uh, although we're not always only looking at um, achievement or often inspection. And in a sense, I, I do have a, um, another strand of research that looks at whether um, other type of skills, non-cognitive skills, are important in the development of children, whether they contribute directly to actually their cognitive outcomes, and uh, whether non-cognitive achievement, non-cognitive skills are important in the sense of favoring uh, social mobility, labor market outcomes that are rewarding individuals. So uh, I I did focus on on a selection of my work because I think it sits in this idea of accountability and how that is very often based on aspects that are hard and easy to measure and that parents seem to value. But, yeah, there is potentially a risk of driving out uh, some subjects and some creativity and, therefore, uh, sort of detracting from the autonomy of schools to basically choose what they want to teach because, ultimately, they're still going to be assessed on on a set of subjects that are 
seen as more important than others. Um, which then leads me back to another of the points that was uh, made, uh, over-targeting and uh, uh, too much over-engineering, uh, which sometimes stifles the creativity of, of teachers. Uh, I think compared to other systems, like for example the Italian one here, actually teachers have more autonomy in terms of what they teach and how they teach it. So. Broadly speaking, we're not at, uh, at very extremes end, but I do hear uh, the, the complaint. And, and um, from talking to teachers, I understand that uh, more than stifling the creativity, the system has actually built a really big amount of administrative duties uh, on teachers that have led some of the best teachers to basically bleed out of the profession, partly because they feel they are more administrators than actually inspiring teachers. Yeah, uh, it, it's a difficult um, so square to circle, and in a sense, uh, I, I completely skipped the part and the remarks I wanted to make on, on teachers because... Um, it's a very complex discussion, but if you want, it's the area where we also know the least because of partly data limitation, uh, but it's also the area where we should invest the most in order to bring out some of these uh, uh, issues and, and understand them a bit better. Uh, last but not least, in terms of social mobility, yes, uh, if the uh, competition choice and autonomy uh, system uh, lead to more stratified intake, there is an issue of basically... Um, uh, locking children into advantage and disadvantage position over and over again. Let me, however, say that one of the remarks that I tried to make is that at least the sponsored academy seems to be helping students that are um, disadvantaged because even though some evidence suggests that within the school it is the better off that gains, these schools are still extremely disadvantaged. So improving them is already doing quite a lot in terms of social mobility. I'll leave it there. Um, accountability and responsibility. <clears throat> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll start with that um, very tricky one. Uh, I I, am, am I heard? I can't hear myself. Um, I, I, I would say you, I think responsibility is a necessary condition for someone to be accountable for something. But I think depending on, on where, how important we think accountability is for improving a system, we might not hold everyone who is responsible for something also to account. So I think that's where the distinction is. We need to be careful not to hold everyone responsible for something to account for it, necessarily, um, because we, we, you know, we, don't, we don't want a system that, that over-emphasizes accountability. I know that there are researchers out there that, that think we do currently have that, that sort of system at the moment. Uh, but that, there's the distinction. You, you shouldn't be held to account for something that you're not responsible for, and that's part of the reason that, um, given that multi-academy trusts are responsible for the performance of all the pupils within the individual schools in the multi-academy trust, uh, why we think that they should be held directly to account for that performance. Um, moving on to, to teacher autonomy, I find that that's a very interesting point, and I think we generally have to be very careful when we talk about teacher autonomy. And the reasons for that are that, that teachers at the moment, workload is a, a huge issue, and, and, and Omo mentioned some of the reasons for that. And I think um, calling for greater, greater autonomy without thinking for teachers, without thinking about the implications of that on workload, is, is perhaps quite a dangerous, um, dangerous hypothesis to hold. Uh, we need to think about ways that we could actually reduce the burden uh, and sometimes the decisions that, that need to be taken and how that affects teachers at different um, levels of seniority and experience. 
Um, so I think that that's something that, that I would just caution uh, against willy-nilly saying that we, that we need, need greater teacher autonomy without really thinking about the implications. Thank you, Amy. Well, I, I fear we must draw things to a close. Um, where, uh, Olmo mentioned this was his inaugural lecture. Um, uh, when I gave my uh, inaugural lecture at the LSE, um, I had a meeting with the director beforehand, uh, and he asked me if I was going to read my lecture um, or just speak from notes or whatever. And I said, I was just going to speak from notes. I was not going to read uh, from it. And he said, ah, yes, well, the last person who did that um, broke down in the middle of his lecture, um, um, burst into tears, stormed out, um, and resigned from the LSE. Uh, (coughs) This is a story I decided not to tell before before his lecture, because I knew he was not going to read his lecture. But, in fact, I... I would have no need to worry. I'm sure that under any circumstances, Olmo would have delivered a brilliant and authoritative lecture, and indeed that's what he has just done. So thank you very much indeed for a very stimulating uh, event.